0: This episode of The Most Innovative Companies is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on.
1: You're listening to Most Innovative Companies. I'm Josh Christensen. Today, we have another highlight from Fast Company's 2022 Innovation Festival this past fall in New York. The panel is called Standing the Test of Time How Heritage Brands Stay Relevant. Featuring Ethiopia Habtamariam,
0: chairwoman and CEO of Motown Records, Jamal Watkins, the Senior Vice President of Strategy and Advancement for the NAACP, and Mark Smucker,
1: President and CEO of the JM Smucker Company. Enjoy! Welcome to this session. Uh, my name is Jeff Beer, and we are here to talk about heritage brands. Standing the test of time. Um, Now, my panelists are from a really compelling mix of brands and organizations, I'd say. Uh, We have Ethiopia, Haptamarium, chairwoman and CEO of Motown Records, Uh, Mark Zucker, president and CEO of the J.M. Smucker Company, and Jamal Watkins, uh, senior vice president of strategy and advancement at the NAACP. I think, you know, standing the test of time, you know, heritage brands, there's, a, there's so many heritage brands that are around, there's so many that have died or gone, gone, gone away, uh, and thinking about this panel, I, I started to think about through the decades, like what, what are some that really were iconic and are no longer, uh, you know, going way back, you have Pan Am, there's Kodak, there's, Tower Records, we were talking about earlier. Uh, check out that documentary about that. All things must pass, I think. Um, one that stuck out to me, though, maybe it's because I'm a kid of the '80s and '90s, was, was Reebok, and not that it's hasn't it's not dead, but certainly in 1989, this is a sneaker brand that had bigger revenues than Nike. It was massive. It was everywhere. Uh, 1991, D. Brown won the dunk contest, like after he pumped up his Reeboks. And now the, the brand has sort of disappeared within Adidas for years and you know was acquired by Authentic Brands uh, group earlier this year and I'm sure hoping for a comeback. But it just illustrates the difficulty both as a company and as a brand and culture to stay relevant, to stay current uh, while also uh, leaning on that heritage and legacy and sort of thinking about these companies really just highlighted the the how impressive it is when organizations and brands do maintain it. So, you know, I I wanted to start today by asking you guys about relevancy and about staying relevant and what that means to you. What, is, what does that idea mean to you in the context of your organizations? Um, Ethiopia, I'll start with you.
2: Yeah, so... I started at Motown in 2014, um, and within the music business, our industry was continuing to suffer from a lack of sales, we were still in the iTunes era, and streaming had not really kicked in yet, so being able to monetize music in the way that we should, we were suffering as an industry. and so. I go to Motown, and I remember, um, as a kid for myself, I remember the Boys to Men, Motown Philly era. That was like something that I loved, and that's what I came up on. And yeah. I thought of Motown in the way that it ha- had evolved throughout each decade. And so, when I was speaking to our chairman and CEO of Universal Music Group, he asked me what my vision for it was. I think Motown should be current to today's times, and. He said, I agree with you, but when you think about the challenge of Motown, people would immediately think of the 60s and a black and white image. And it was extremely challenging um, for us in the first two years of the company. And so I just thought about the values of the organization. Mr. Gordy built a label on artist development, great songs, et cetera. But throughout each decade, the, the music reflected the times. The artists grew, the music grew, fashion changed, and I was like how do we allow that to happen today the the other key part of it for me was that Motown was the first maybe not the first one of the first black independent labels to be started out of Detroit in 1959 and so as an entrepreneur what he did was so impactful because there would not have been a Def Jam Records or a Bad Boy or a LaFace Records um, labels that went on to kind of live in what Mr. Gordy created um, throughout each decade and create artists that were extremely impactful. So I said, How can I use Motown as a platform for entrepreneurs of today? How can we not only be a platform for incredible talent, great songs, and, and honor the values, but also honor the story? Because the impact of Motown has been massive. And so I'm from Atlanta, and I think you know at that time, 2014, f- 2015, there was a lot happening on the ground level with independent artists, entrepreneurs starting their own label. And so I chose to partner with a few labels and um, people that I respected in the business that I knew were on a ground level operating with the same values that Motown was built on. And so I did that with um, a partnership with Quality Control Music out of Atlanta which was really starting to build a foundation in the hip hop scene. And, you know, it's funny, it's called quality control because that was what the A&R meetings for Motown were called. They were called quality control. (laughs) They were called quality control A&R meetings. And so we did that partnership in 2015. And from that, we were able to develop and kind of operate in the way the music business was operating today on a ground level, right? On a street level. And so from that, we were able to sign artists like Little Yachty. Um, Migos, uh, Little Baby, City Girls, and things of that sort, and that's and, and also tell that story of what Motown did in 1959. The ripple effect of that continues to exist, and we're helping to uplift new brands and other labels in the same way while bringing global artists to the marketplace. So. That was, that's been a part of our strategy since I got to the label.
1: That's cool, it's a, like the brand lift, a mutual brand lift of like a new independent label. Yeah. Giving you guys that street level credibility, yeah. but then the scale and heritage of Motown helping them with the with, uh, distribution and everything too. It's, right. uh, that's very cool. Mark, what about uh, at Smucker, how do you guys think about uh, relevancy in terms of, honoring the heritage of the company, but also while, while, not, while not being stagnant by moving forward.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, thanks for having me. Um, it's a pleasure to be with all of you. Um, really similar to what Ethiopia said, you know, we own a lot of very mature brands that are, have a lot of scale. If you think about Folgers, Jif Peanut Butter, Meow Mix, Milkbone all of these brands we've grown up with and, and regardless of which generation you're from, you probably have some connection or some perception of what those brands are. And it, at the end of the day, it ultimately starts with the consumer, right? And it's a combination of um, what is the consumer really looking for and how can our brands deliver what they're looking for, but do so in a way that's modern and relevant. And um, in many cases at the intersection of culture. So if you think about Jif peanut butter, which is a number one brand, it's been a number one brand for many years. And the slogan was choosy moms, choose Jif. And that had become a little stale. It hadn't, it, it wasn't carrying the same relevancy in part because the modern family is, consists of you know, two dads or a combination of, of parents or single parents or what have you. And so there was a little staleness. And so we evolved, we were able to through truly reinventing our entire marketing model, both internally and then externally with the agencies that we work with really start to connect the brand back to, through, through people who love the brand. So first we evolved the slogan to something that was a little edgier, which is that jiffing good, right? And um, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's obviously a bit more contemporary, but we did a number of different advertising campaigns, but the one that really stuck was this campaign where we were able to leverage Ludacris, who is also an Atlanta guy and a huge GIF fan. And um, (laughs) he happened to be um, doing the next Fast and Furious. So the timing was good because he was coming back into culture. Um, And we were able to leverage his love of the brand and bring and put him forward in a way that really connected to our consumers and to younger consumers as well, who may have grown up with the brand. And then the campaign went not only on mass media, on TikTok. He did a rap challenge. Um, there was uh, we we actually generated over seven billion views, which is kind of mind-boggling. Um, and through that campaign, and TikTok gave us an award for one of the. The, the best campaigns of, of the year, as well as did, did Fast Company. So we're really proud of that. And so we're trying to extend that type of work across most of our brands in ways that are also meeting the consumer's needs, but doing so in a way that's relevant today.
1: Yeah, yeah, that, uh, that ludicrous campaign was massive uh, and super surprising in a, in a great way. Uh, Jamal, obviously a completely different brand in a way as music, consumer goods. As an organization, how do you think about brand relevancy and, and the, 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 that, the role that plays for you guys? Well,
3: first and foremost, good morning, everyone. It's good to be on the stage. I know some folks are wondering why would the NAACP be a part of a Fast Company Innovation Festival? Why are we a part of the Fast Company Impact Council? The first thing and the first premise is that our business model is about people and moving people and moving communities. And so while I love listening to Motown and as I was telling Mark, I saw Smuckers this morning on the Today Show, our brand actually matters in a slightly different way. So I'm gonna do a quick sort Of audience poll, and this is a throwaway. So raise your hand if you're familiar with the brand Coca Cola. Everyone's hand should be raised, that's pretty (laughs) universal. But I want you to keep your hand raised. I'm going to switch to some other brands Amnesty International, okay, hands are still raised. Planned Parenthood, American Civil Liberties Union, oh, oh, I lost some hands. Anti Defamation League, some hands. So, when you think about this, I'll also, man, you can put your hands down. The organizations I switched to, going from Coca Cola to, say, Planned Parenthood, or organizations like the NACP that do public policy advocacy, mobilization, community building. We are two C3s, two C4s, a for profit arm, a full service government agency, if you will. We're an NGO to the United Nations, had an event last night because folks are here for the UN. We have an entertainment arm that does the Image Awards and pushes Hollywood. We're all these things, but at the core, we're about people in community moving public policy and so NAACP being all over the country, 2600 plus units, think Anchorage, Alaska to you know Miami, Florida, it's all about our stakeholders, volunteers, actually folks like you in this room who give their time, talent, and treasure to move the organization forward. But what we found in our 113 years of existence is that we constantly have to reevaluate and reassess and rebrand who we are. We can't be the organization. Organization that's seen as oh you're marching and singing and in the streets. We do that. But we also have an ETF that's traded on the New York Stock Exchange that's moving companies towards ESG. You know, we have a VC fund that we're building in order to invest in black founders of companies and corporations. And so as an organization, when we think about this notion of brand, we have to be really smart about what it is we're trying to accomplish. But how do we reposition ourselves? Because at the end of the day, there are folks who are going to love smuckers, but there are also folks who have to love the work of the association, the NAACP, and to give their time, talent, and treasure to do that work. And so we end up sort of using some of the marketing and branding tactics that are traditional for corporations, but we also have to pivot to what does this mean for you? Because at the end of the day, I'm not giving you a Coke and a smile, but I'm hopefully giving you advancement around policy and advocacy that makes life better for the communities we serve. So it really is this notion of how do we sort of mix it up in a way that centers
1: communities first. Well, I'll start with you. I'll come back to you on the next question first because I wanted to ask, Mark touched on the, the GIF work. I wanted to ask if there was a project or, or initiative that, or, and, or campaign for that matter, piece of work that embodies this idea of finding ways to uh, make that emotional connection to attract people, in your case, for their time, talent, and treasure for the organization. Is there something recently that, that a piece of work that that embodies that approach and how you guys are doing that?
3: Yeah, right now I would lift up. I spent some time in Israel in August with a delegation and one of the things that came up was access to water. Our president and CEO, Derek Johnson, lives in a community, Jackson, Mississippi, where right now they don't have access to clean water. And so I have a colleague, Bray Connor, who is testifying right now well, at 10 a.m. this morning in front of a House subcommittee on Homeland Security about access to clean water. When you think about the notion of clean water, and this is another throwaway question, raise your hands if when you turn on your faucet you expect clean water to flow. <laughs> it's, it's pretty sort of standard. It's a human right under the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, but when you think about Jackson, Mississippi, for example, what we found is that a certain governor, decided that they wanted to take over the airport, the school district and the water municipality and said, let's cut Jackson off from funding. And Jackson just happens to be a city of about 80% African-Americans. And so that move, hyperly racialized, was a move to say, let's starve the city from infrastructure investments and then let's see what breaks. And then we can come in and save the day and take over. I'm nonpartisan, but not blind. And so when we think about this reality, What we're finding is that the water crisis in Jackson is man-made, and it's politically driven. Now, if you hop over to Baltimore, Maryland, there's some E. coli in the water. I don't know if folks have been following the news. The infrastructure there is broken. Different politics, but similar sort of situation. You can go all the way back to Flint, Michigan, where choices are being made. So when you think about the NAACP, our job is to do public policy advocacy, hyper-local, to make sure that things that are happening in cities like Jackson don't continue to happen, meaning we got to fix Jackson, but there are other cities on the precipice of folks turning on the faucet and clean water not flowing. And nine times out of ten, it's man-made, it's decisions, it's policy, and in many cases, it's racialized and it's economics, and so, when you think about our brand, if we are not standing in the gap for those community members and doing that type of advocacy, we're losing out on really who we are as an organization. But there's other implications. There's a business model there because you have to have clean water treatment facilities and there's contracts and procurement. That's hyperly racialized There's the politics, Republicans, Democrats, and then there's a the community. So our brand is wrapped into all of this. And literally today, we have folks who are struggling in the United States to simply take a shower, cook their food, brush their teeth, because someone made a decision that we were gonna play around with their water. And so for us, that's at the center of who we are and our brand.
1: Ethiopia, how, in terms of, you mentioned the um, partnership with quality control. What, is there a, something you guys are doing right now that also embodies this approach of honoring that heritage, but also moving forward?
0: This episode of Most Innovative Companies is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. Um,
2: yeah, I mean, there are other partnerships that we okay. have done and other entrepreneurs we've invested in. There are probably about three or four of them. that okay. we work. And also looking at the global marketplace of how we show up and kind of mirror what we've done with QC and other territories. So clearly we look at the African market, there's a ton of incredible talent there and looking at other entrepreneur partnerships to do the same thing. Nothing I can speak of today. To,
1: okay. Yeah. Did that partnership help open the doors, though, oh, like to, to I, new I artists?
2: When we talk about, um, I think credibility and authenticity is a key part of what we do being in music, and when people are choosing to decide who they want to be in business with, which label they want to work with, and why, it's because of being ahead of the curve in these sort of strategies, being aware of where the marketplace really is, what kids really care about. We knew that music discovery had gotten to a place where fans wanted to be able to find the new artists that they love first before a major label was telling them, this is who you should listen to, this is who you should care about, or whatever. And so I felt the same way in relation to labels, to music labels. And so the that strategy of the partnerships was key for me also, because people wanted to feel like they were a part of building something new in the music landscape. And so that strategy has been impactful within our industry and I'm also seeing, seeing it in the artist community with why they wanna be with us because they know that we understand what they want. They're, we're in tune with what fans want. We're in tune with what the artist community wants. And so it's made people wanna be with us.
1: Well, speaking of that, like, is there, I mean, I have no Motown, but I'm in my forties. Yeah. When you're talking to an 18, 20 year old artist, what is their impression of Motown and what's, what's, what's the pitch? Like is it I
2: think it's some of what I've just, I just okay. spoke to now is yeah. the partnerships, but it's also artist development. So at the same time that we have these key partnerships, we have a ton of new talent that we are modeling in the same way that Barry Gordy created, like, you know, developing over a three to five year period where you can put on an incredible live show and you build a, a live touring base for yourself you're creating incredible songs you're you know uh working with the right creatives to help figure out what your are looking your style should be but that's the longer game and that takes a longer process and in today's time you have to have a business model that allows you to be current with the way the marketplace is moving now while still developing that talent so people know that we appreciate and respect that while also staying in tune with where music is today.
1: Nice. Mark, speaking of sort of staying relevant where things are today, but you know, honoring the, the company's heritage, I think of something like the Uncrustables. Uncrustables, uh, frozen peanut butter sandwiches that are basically like without crust, if anyone doesn't know what they are. Massive hit for for Mark's company. I just had
0: your first one. Before I just had my first it.
1: one backstage. That's
2: what was back there. Recommend
1: it. It's pretty good. Pretty good. Um, how? And, but I mean, you mentioned this the 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 laundry list of of, of brands that you guys uh, uh, have um, that are almost heritage brands in their own right, whether it's Folgers or <laughs> Meow Mix. How? I guess. What, what do you see as your biggest challenge right now in, in, doing, in staying current? I know you guys are looking, building a new uh, factory for the, based on the Incrustable's popularity. How do you guys think about innovation and being ahead of the curve while also honoring sort of the heritage of the company and, and you know, building on the trust that that heritage has, has you know, fostered with, with, with consumers?
0: Yeah, so obviously these brands have create emotion, right, for consumers. And if you if you think about why we're in business, um, our purpose is very simply feeding connections that help us thrive. And so why we come to work is the products and the brands that we sell should help those emotional connections, should help um, consumers um, be delighted but beyond that, as uh, Jamal and Ethiopia both talked about, it is on some level it is about supporting our communities. And um, if we're going to feed connections, you know, we have a very strong commitment to um, feeding America. So ending hunger, um, we have a very strong commitment to art the arts and we support education through a, in a lot of different ways we support um, in our own backyard in akron ohio um, the i promise school which is the school that that you may be familiar with that lebron founded so we support that we support the legal defense fund we're in our third year of, of supporting that and pet shelters and so we have a responsibility as a company to support the consumer that we serve, but also the communities in which we work. And I think in doing that and helping to get the word out, it does help our entire branded portfolio. Not everybody knows that Folgers is part of our portfolio or Cafe Bustello or what have you, but we have an obligation, particularly in this day and age, to live up to our our stated purpose. Um, and so at the end of the day, whether you know the innovation that, that you mentioned, we've innovated in the sense of totally transforming our marketing model and speaking to our consumers in a different way. But that's cool but it doesn't work if we can't deliver products to the consumer. And so through the pandemic, with all the supply chain issues and so forth, we really had to look inward, double down on our supply chain, get really creative in terms of where we're sourcing stuff, ingredients, packaging materials, what have you. But that work translates all the way to the grocery store shelf. And so part of the reason that we've enjoyed success over the last couple years is not only because of that transformation in our marketing model, but it's because we were able to do things all the way down to the store level or the store cluster level so that we could ensure that products were making their way all the way to the shelf and staying in stock. So it's a combination of marketing, yes, but it's also that whole sales, the whole commercial ecosystem that allowed us to, to continue to serve our consumers.
1: Did that foundation that you know helped you stay on shelves during the pandemic when maybe others had bigger challenges, how did that uh, build on the, on, on the trust? Or how, how would you guys learn from that in terms of your responsibility as a, as, a, as, a, as a company, but also as a brand and people see that that reliability is there, how has that helped Push you guys beyond. I
0: think the last in the most years. the simplest example, if we can't even be on shelf, how are we going to make enough product to donate to Feeding America, right? So we have to. Our supply chain has to work. Yes, we want. To, obviously, we're in business to make a profit, to grow, to grow our brands. Yes, but how are we going to serve our broader communities unless we get the supply chain right?
1: Yeah. Well, hit records and sales, sales, Jamal, I wanted to ask you what your, I'm saying maybe metrics of so success for these, these two brands. For the NWCP, Jamal, how do you, what metric do you use for uh, measuring success?
3: Well, I would lean in and say that as an organization, we had to really define our DNA. Um, our chief strategy officer, Yumika Rushing, I believe she's somewhere here in the room, has led our organization through a process that said, when the organization shows up, how do you know our fingerprints are there? And so we would argue that there are three components. It's racial equity, If we're not talking about and centering racial equity through an advocacy frame, then it's not the NAACP. We're not here as a public service organization. So while we support you know, folks having those public services, we're advocating for policies that shift their reality from a racial equity frame. The second reality is this notion of civic engagement. How many of you are planning to vote this election cycle if you can vote here in the US? It's important, voting matters. And so when we think about our communities, voting is a part of our core DNA. And then the third piece is supportive policies and institutions. And when we say policies and institutions, for those of you who are in this room and represent corporate America, we're also talking about you. And so when we think about things like ESG, the S and the G of the ESG, that's where we come into play with our corporate partners and thinking about how we're advancing the ball forward. So as Mark talks about putting product on the shelf, we also wanna make sure that we're connecting people with profits. And so from our perspective, our DNA really matters. And so those are the three things that we measure at the center of who we are in terms
1: of our value proposition at the end of the day. Nice. Uh, You know, this is a very polarized time, obviously, which has led to some pressure and brands feeling the need or being compelled to speak out on their values and 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 act accordingly um, you know some wear their values on their sleeve a little more exposed than others. I'm wondering how do you help your brand build no sorry how are your brands sorry navigating this moment uh, in Jamal I have a separate question on you on this and I've I a good idea how you guys are but in, as in, as Motown how how do you think about these issues and when to maybe speak out when when to hang back and, and let action speak Be, and do you feel that 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 pressure in the in the culture right now of, of needing to to speak out uh, at certain times.
2: Yes. I mean, yes, definitely the pressure was there. I do think, though, that Motown, when you think about where Motown sat in the 60s and the 70s, Motown was always there. And so we had a little bit of a blueprint of how the label showed up and how our artists showed up. Um, in relation to what was ha- what's happening in today's times. But I will say, as it pertains to our artists, you know, you can't make an artist post something saying that they support or are gonna provide support around an issue that's happening. Um, but it is our responsibility to help in the education process for our talent. I, we do feel that responsibility, and we do feel the responsibility of showing up in the community authentically. So. Um, not only doing things post-George Floyd, but how we've been showing up in the communities pre-George Floyd. We've always felt that responsibility as a label. So, you know, whether it's, you know, being in Los Angeles where the label is based today and, you know, giving towards local organizations or charities, doing events with the community around Juneteenth, the same areas that we go to find new talent how are we also showing up for them in in their real life and so we've felt that authentically and um you know i i also think about the team of employees that we work with and i remember specifically during the pandemic 2020 the pre, you know the music industry we were, people weren't doing live shows right so artists can perform they couldn't make money that way but we were churning out music and content and everyone's on the zoom and then you have you know, the George Floyd incident happened, the, the uprising. And so getting, really dealing with the mental health issues that came from our team as well and how are we providing more resources for them. So it's really being thoughtful in everything and not just, you know, there was a period of time where people were just posting things to say they were supporting right? An issue. The black but, but not the black squares, but then not really doing the work to make real change happen. And so... Um, That's what I care the most about. I don't care about a post on social media or a press release. It's what are we doing to really be a part of making change. And so that's just, that's what I feel like is important for Motown as a label. And I think for the entire music industry, understanding the influence that we have, the power that we have. Music is one of the most powerful art forms that is a form of connection for people. And so I always think about it in the perspective of how, how can we help authentically in whatever is happening. Nice. Yeah,
1: Mark, you mentioned you know helping in the communities uh, was the investment in the I promised school uh, helping uh, donating food, donating to the legal defense fund. How how, how do you guys? That's that's part of uh, the the action. Uh, have you guys? How are you guys navigating um, a environment where? brands are not only maybe expected to, to, to act, but also to talk about how they're acting and how they feel about certain issues. How, how do you guys think about that?
0: Yeah, I think it, it depends on the brand, right? Um, uh, Cafe Bustello, I mean, pet brands are, are easy, right? Because pets don't have these types of, of social issues. Cafe Bustello, for example, <laughs> has, well, maybe they do. <laughs> um, we obviously, obviously, want humane societies. are yeah. Important, of course. There are social issues around around pets, but they're maybe less politicized. Cafe Bustello is a brand that is that is rooted in the South Florida Cuban community. So obviously, there, there's there's clearly a connection. But as it relates to these, in many cases, these are existential issues and you think about we're a publicly traded company, uh, Fortune 500, S&P 500, we have to serve a lot of constituents, not least of which is our shareholders, mm-hmm. who are becoming more activist, right? And more vocal in terms of what they want. But when it comes to these social issues, the loudest voices on these things are often coming from the inside. It's the, our employees, right? and as we address them, and we have to be very thoughtful about, you know, 10 years ago, a publicly traded company would not have imagined that we, as a company, or me as a CEO, have to make a statement or sign on to the human rights campaign, for example. Now, we are expected to do that, and so we have to navigate those conversations very carefully, but internally, it starts with inclusion, and we talk about D and I. In my view, it starts with the I, because you can't get to the D or the E unless you're creating an environment that feels inclusive. So some of these issues, social injustice is one that I think it is very easy for people to get behind and is generally less polarizing. But there are other issues. Um, that are fundamentally rooted in religion, for example, where if we're being inclusive, we have to, as an organization, allow for the conversation and we have to be respectful of people's differing opinions. And so as we think about which ones, I, I referenced the human rights campaign, which we have signed on to, as we think about which social issues we're going to be less or more, more vocal on. We've actually developed a, a framework that helps us think strategically about which ones are important and how we communicate first and foremost internally with our employees and how we explain to them what and address their concerns. So it starts internally and it starts with inclusion.
1: Jamal, in that environment that brands are finding themselves in, um, you know, for example, there were many brand promises made in 2020. There many commitments made generally. Uh, how how do you how do you, as an organization that works it works in social injustice and and and, and community issues day to day, what do you make of the of the of this broader Corporate environment now that that and and some of these expectations, and secondly, how how do you hold them accountable to some of these uh, uh, commitments, the ones that do have made the commitments?
3: Well, I'll I'll share a couple of things that may be a tad bit controversial for this room, but I think it's important. The first story I'll share is that our president and CEO who has to go out and really promote our organization and find partners and investors was in a conversation with a potential investor. And the, the investor, if you will, the potential partner said, you know, we're over indexed on the black community and on black folks. Where do you all stand on Asian hate? Now, I know for some people that may not be jarring, but it's this notion that sometimes folks are picking and choosing their issues and, oh, 2020 it happened and now we're past 2020, we're in 2022. Black folks are fine, let's talk about another community. But what we find in this space is that if you're going to truly invest in people, and connect the dots to profits that you can't really pick and choose. I think you heard Penny earlier talk about in Chicago, if you don't think about the black community, the brown community, if you don't think about all those folks at the table, then you're not getting it right in terms of the ecosystem. And so that's a reality that we're facing with organizations like my own, is that in many ways we're dealing with the oppression Olympics and what's top of the mind. And it's, oh, today you were hot, tomorrow you're not. And so in many ways we would argue that we need brand partners who are with us for the long haul. Because at the end of the day, the water crisis in Jackson didn't just happen yesterday. The racialized issues in Mississippi didn't just happen yesterday. And they don't go away because someone said, we're going to invest in black communities now all as well. The second example I'll give is this notion of these big promises. We heard $100 billion, we're investing in racial equity. When you start to look under the hood, you hear folks say, oh, but that's our marketing dollars. We were going to run commercials targeting black folks, and that's how we got to that $30 million that's actually not investing in the community or investing in people. And so an 18-year-old, for example, can figure this out on Twitter and blow up your entire organization by saying it's a false premise. Mm -hmm. And so I think we have to really speak truth to power and say if you're going to invest in this notion of centering communities and centering people, the investments have to be real and the dollars have to be real because the work that we're doing is not free or cheap. It actually is about making sure a poor community can't buy all the Coca-Cola in the world. And so why would you want communities to be poor? They can't stay in Marriott's if they can't afford it. And so this notion that you heard Ken Chenault talking about jobs and good jobs and that type of investment is really about riding the ship because economically, we're all in the same boat, if you will. And so for us, that's how we're seeing the moment and seizing the moment is that we have to push and keep pushing because it's not about platitudes or lip service, it's about real investment because at the end of the day, you're talking about the people who actually make this country great and actually power businesses at the end of the day. (laughs)
1: Well, we have a few minutes left, and I just wanted to end on a looking forward note and ask you guys what you're most excited about looking, we've had an interesting last few years, Mm -hmm. Uh, what you're most excited about looking forward to in the next couple years in terms of, could be the work you're doing, the artists you're working with, Mm what your brands are up to and what, where the organization is going. But uh, yeah, just curious how do you, we've talked a lot about sort of how you guys are maintaining and building relevancy. What are you most excited about right now, looking forward?
2: When I think about the future of music, I also think about some of the challenges ahead of us, right? When you look at, You're fighting with, you're fighting for attention, right? People are listening to podcasts, they're listening to audiobooks, and it is disrupting what's happening when people are listening to music. But I also see it as an opportunity to extend storytelling for our artists as we really focus on breaking global superstars, right? And people want to trust artists today. They don't want to feel like it's just for a moment or a flash in a pan actor. So I think Some of the things that we identify as challenges in our industry are also going to help tell the story for our superstars of the future. So I'm really excited about that. And also for Motown, I think the storytelling of each decade with Motown, creating more experiences that allow people to live in the nostalgia of the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and things that we're doing back in Detroit to connect those dots. I'm really excited about. And so I just think there's nothing but um, upside for Motown going forward around the world.
0: Great. Mark? I, I think this conversation has been super inspiring. And um, I think what I'm, my, I'm taking away is, in my own business, what I hope that we can continue to do is wake up every day and continue to make a difference in consumers' lives and the communities we serve, and continue to try to find new ways that we can do that. And so just hearing this conversation, I think, inspires me to think about, OK, what are we doing today, and what can we do? Do differently to either serve our, the individual consumer, or more collectively those communities. I think that's what's exciting. Yes.
1: Jamal, we got you know elections and and all kinds of exciting things coming our way. What are you most looking forward to? I'm, I'm most looking forward to this notion
3: of innovation. As I started off being a 113-year-old organization, we have to constantly reevaluate and reassess our relevancy. And so as we launch four new centers of innovation, not to play on the Innovation Festival, <laughs> um, our organization is really pivoting forward to how do we have future impact. And so I'm excited about things like a venture capital fund. Who knew that the NAACP would create such a thing? But if that's a vehicle for change and racial equity and providing access to capital, let's do it and let's be unapologetic about it. And Mm -hmm. so as I think about the election that's looming and the world being on fire almost every day, I know that the people in this room and in rooms across the nation like this are really hopefully focusing in on how do we invest in people plus profit so that we actually find the right balance. And so for me, that's where I think our hope is and our hope is focused in on.
1: Thanks very much, everybody, for joining us here. Thanks to Ethiopia, Mark, oh, and all. Thank you